If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read through our text for today. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18, uh, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the word gets to be opened up here as we gather. We thank you that we can take it with us and open it every day of our lives. Father, we are so grateful that you have been a God who speaks, who encourages, who lifts us up, who warns us. Lord, we pray that today as we read through this passage and as we try to understand it, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to see things that we would not have seen if it was left up to our natural selves our human brains and our human hearts, Lord. We need, we need the regenerated heart and soul and mind uh, to be able to see these things. So, Father, serve us well with this word as you designed for it. And, Lord, help us to love you and honor you and give you worship more because of the things we see here. Father, additionally, I ask that you would prepare us to wage war against the enemy in our life this next week. Help us to press out to resist temptation deception, and Lord, let us love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Our author here refers to the children, Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. And the children here, quickly as we just kind of dive into this passage, the children is us. It's namely believers, but humanity even generally. Remember, just a few verses ago, if you've been with us for any time, you might know that just a few verses prior to this one, our author tells us that God intends to bring many sons to glory. We spent some time talking about that, but, but that there is a broad scope of the work of Jesus on the cross that it was intended to bring many sons to glory. Not just one, not just two. John in the book of Revelation will tell us there will be a multitude no one can number. Many sons to glory. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. As I said, just even a couple of verses earlier. We note the family language here. It sounds to us a bit like what it says in John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we have been given the right to become children of God through faith. This kind of language is used all over the New Testament for our sake. So the since therefore the children share in flesh and blood is talking about us. Jesus became one of us. You and I share in flesh and blood, literally. We're, we're, we're physical, bodied 
people. So our Savior likewise put on flesh and blood. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this might be one of those things that for a Christian, if you celebrate Christmas and you acknowledge the fact that Jesus came into the world, that he actually lived, he actually was born, he actually died, and he physically raised again. It might be one of those things that just kind of goes over the head and we take for granted and don't pause to think about it. But I want you to imagine for a moment the significance of what this means, especially in light of a Hebrew audience. This means that prior to the incarnation, prior to Jesus being born here on earth, Jesus was not flesh and blood. In the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet added humanity to his divinity. The second member of the Trinity was spirit, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. When the triune God then was creating Adam in the garden, he was fashioning the very flesh and blood that he would one day put on. This is really significant, isn't it? I can't can't help but imagine what it was like when, when Jesus was present in the forming and the creating of Adam... And he says, these are his hands, and this is where they'll put the nails. And this will will be man's back, which they will flay open with the beating of whips. This, This is his head, upon which a crown of thorns will be placed. Can you imagine that? As Jesus is doing the act of creating a man, as not yet flesh and blood... Can't imagine what that would have been like. I want you to think again, not, 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 not future, not, not, not just creation back then, but, but what would happen in the future for Adam and our past, Jesus' death on the cross. And you might remember then that the night before, he would eventually go to the cross and he would die for us. He had the Last Supper with his disciples and he gave them the communion feast to share together. Think about communion for a moment. What do the two elements represent? The flesh and the blood of Jesus, right? The body and the blood. So since we share in body and blood, flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of those same things, flesh and blood. He commanded his disciples to take these elements. Now, if you ever asked yourself the question, we've, we talked about this here before, but it's something helpful to remember. Why didn't Jesus just command his disciples to remember? Like, why didn't he just say, don't forget... Body, blood, broken, shed for you. Just remember that. Why did Jesus find it necessary to give to them a ritual or a ceremony? Why the inconvenience of Christians needing to provide unleavened bread and fruit of the vine wherever Christians would gather for all time, whatever country they're in, in order to share communion? Why the physical things? Well, Jesus gave us these tangible reference points to remind us that he was actually here. When you hold the cup and you hold the bread, even if they're, they're smaller pieces that are representative, they're actually there. You're going to actually put something in you. 
when you drink that, when you, when you eat that. It's, it's here. It's not just in your mind, like a notion that you, you kind of imagine figuratively. It, it's actually there. Jesus really did partake of flesh and blood. And he did this to identify with his brothers, those who he's not afraid, not ashamed to call brothers. But why? Bold this out. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, so for first clause there, that through death, He partook of the same things so that he could die. Jesus took on flesh so he would be killable. You can't kill God, but you can kill a man. There are several reasons that are given in this particular passage. Two of them have already been given to us why Jesus became a man. Number one, to identify with those he's going to die for. Real, real identification. Second, so that he could actually die. He had to be made a man. The third one we'll deal with next week. But there are two giant questions that come out of this sentence. This is the second half of the sentence, aren't there? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Here's the two questions, if I could formulate them well, for at least what comes to my mind when I read through this. First, what does it mean that the devil has the power of death? First, what does that even mean? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In what way does the devil have the power of death? That's the first question. And the second question that I would ask here is, how is the devil destroyed by Jesus' death? So we're going to deal with both of those in turn. Let's do the first one. How, How does it work that the devil has the power of death? We'll deal with that one first. First, it should be critical for us to acknowledge that the devil cannot kill anyone without God's permission. It's the first and most basic thing to say. The devil cannot kill anyone without God's permission. He can't even touch anyone without God's ultimate permission. You might remember the book of Job, the Old Testament. We point to this when we're trying to think about the way that Satan interacts with God. And There's something really significant about the opening scene to the book of Job. There's this man who loves and honors God, lives down in the world, and and Satan has been making his way throughout the world, and he finds himself before the throne of God, and he stands before God to accuse Job, or to say that at least he would be accusation worthy. And God is actually the one, if you remember the story, who initiates the conversation about Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan wanted to hurt Job. He wanted to kill Job, but God would not permit him to. In fact, everything that happens to Job throughout that story, lots of suffering, lots of destruction, lots of pain, everything that goes down with this man Job in the Old Testament is only permitted by God. God says, I will allow you to do this, but only that, not more. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus says in Luke 22, 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, talking to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So right there by that first verse, we already see that what Jesus is saying here is that Satan was demanding to rob you of your faith so that your faith may fail. He wants you. But Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. What comes in the next verse is Jesus says, and when you, Peter, have turned again, 
strengthen your brothers. Jesus full well knew Peter was not going to fall, that the, that the prayer that he was giving to his father to preserve Peter would certainly stand. Satan couldn't do anything to Peter unless he wanted to. This is why Jesus, several chapters uh, earlier, and actually in another story would make it even clearer in Matthew 16, Jesus will say, I will build my church. He's pointing to Peter as the first one making this statement of Jesus being God. And he says, my church being built will not fail. Peter's not going anywhere until Jesus says so. So in what way can it be said that the devil has the power of death? Did you ever notice, like even in the Old Testament stories, read through these with your kids maybe, the comic book kind of Bibles or things, you just kind of tell them the stories of what happens. Who is it that comes in the great exodus that kills off all the firstborn? It's not Satan, it's the angel of the Lord. That's who comes. How then? Can we say that the devil has the power of death? I think in at least two ways. First, it was through the deception of the devil that death first enters into our world. We're back to Genesis 3. They count back in the garden. It was a sinless place. There's one specific law given Something to not do laid out before Adam and Eve, and it was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? The devil shows up and he deceives the woman. Later we'll see how he deceives her. He lies to her and she takes of the fruit and death entered into the world. In fact, this is one of the things that they say is so different. The New Testament writers tell us it's so different about heaven. How can we know there's, no, there's not going to be sin in heaven? Because there will be no cause for it. The tempter will be gone. There's many places we can see that point. There's no tempter there. No serpent will be able to get into the new heavens and new earth. Because he'll be tormented day and night in the lake of fire. He's not going to get in there. No temptation, no deception will enter in. And this lie that started back in that Genesis 3 in the garden account continues today. The lie that leads to death. This is why even in Revelation 12, kind of talking about language about Satan. Look what it says in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So he has the power of the death. Ephesians 2, 2 says, uh, talking about our sin and our transgression, we used to be dead in this, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following, this is another term used for Satan here, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Talking about non-believers. Used to be true for us, it is now true for the unbelieving world, that the prince of the power of the air is at work in the sons of disobedience. This deception of the devil that brings on death to the whole world continues to reign today. In in that way, that's the first way we see that he has the power of death. But even more so, the second reason we can say that he has the power of the death is that his power of death continues... In that, he accuses humanity before God. He is the accuser, Revelation 12, 10. And I have heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. He's talking about this 
final crushing blow end against the enemy. And it says this, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Who accuses them day and night before our God. This is what Satan sets himself to do. He accuses. Back to that Job story again. Remember Job? Satan goes before God, and even as God introduces the conversation, Satan tries to, Satan doesn't go, yeah, you're right, he's a good guy. Satan goes, yeah, but he would fall. He's not really, really a God lover. He's not truly committed to you. He tries to accuse Job before God. I want you to imagine for a moment the sheriff, the white hat in the old cowboy movies, who sets out to take down the bad guy, the black hat guy, right? He accuses, he brings an accusation against the, 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 the wickedness, the law-breaking of this bad guy. And he brings the case before a judge. He then proves this guy was wrong. Once convicted, the sentence is carried out. Who gets the credit for bringing that man to justice? The executioner? The judge? Ultimately, it's the sheriff. The one who made the right accusation. Now, the reason that the accusations of Satan carry any weight at all before our God, listen to this, is because they are true. God cannot be deceived. Zechariah 3.10, look at this. This is Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, being shown a vision by an angel of the Lord. And in this vision, this is what he sees. Then he, this angel, showed me Joshua the high priest, high priest at that time, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is what he does. He launches his accusations. But accuse him of what? What is he trying to accuse this Joshua of? Two verses later it shows us. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with Filthy garments. In all kinds of prophetic literature, this idea of filthy garments is used to point to iniquity. In fact, the very next verse, it'll identify this filthy garments with sin. That's, what, that's the filth. It's not actual dirt. It's the fact that he's sinful. So he's not standing there with pure clothes and Satan's trying to deceive the angel of the Lord. Aha, no, he's really dirty on the inside. He's standing there filthy and Satan's rightly saying, look at this sinner. You and I are in the same predicament that apart from Jesus, all of Satan's accusations about us are true. You don't need to worry about the lie that Satan might say before God. You need to worry about the truth. You actually are guilty. Our great hope is that believers are built up and, and grow and as they hear these kinds of things. But I'm also well aware that oftentimes online or on, on the radio or sometimes here in our church, uh, non-believers hear this. Someone who says, I'm not, I'm not really a Christian, but I'm curious about these things. We're thrilled to have you here. We want you to listen to these things. You need to know that just, was, just as it was true of all people before believing in Jesus, Satan can rightly stand before God and accuse you and you stand condemned. Your sin has made you condemnable. How then can we hope to survive on that day of judgment? This brings us to the second question. Second question, which was, how is the devil destroyed by Jesus' death? 
Because that was the good news. The author of Hebrews is not telling us things he's all worried about. He's telling us something that is leading to this wonderful, glorious, good news. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's where he's going. So in what way is the devil destroyed by Jesus? By his death. Jesus' death. Real quick. The word destroy does not always mean eradicate. Okay? All over the New Testament. This idea of destroy, destruction is not always eradicate. In fact, if you were to flip to the end of this whole book we've got here together, you'll find out that Satan does not stop existing in eradication, but that he exists for forever in the lake of fire. Destroy here means, like it does in many other places in its use in the New Testament, render ineffective, nullify, neutralize, to deprive of power. So how is the devil neutralized by Jesus' death? Let's look, at, let's look at that verse and let's look at the next verse. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why were they subject to lifelong slavery? Through their fear of death. So Satan's power is linked with the fear of death. In other words, Satan's power of death is only an operation over those who have fear of death. I want to show you this in another place. It might help you see this even more clearly. Romans 8, 13 through 15. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's natural. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. So for the non-Christian, you will die. And that is all there is for you is death. This is one of the most fundamental truths of being a human. It's one of the single most certain things about life is death. But the good news continues. Let's see the rest of this passage. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see that the same words being used there like it was in Hebrews. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All of us will die in the body. All of us will die in the flesh. But for believers, we will live. It says in verse 13, you will live because you're not into that slavery anymore. You've received the spirit of adoption. You can now be called a child of God. So let's unpack this for a second. When you lived according to the flesh, you were a slave to fear, namely the fear of death. You were a slave to the fear of death. But now, if you believe, you don't need to fear anymore because you are not slaves to that end anymore. It's not just that you get courageous all of a sudden. It's that there isn't anything to fear. Where there is no fear of death, Satan has no power. 
Say that one more time. Where there is no fear of death, Satan has no power. Now, you might be thinking, but Rich, there are many non-believers who don't fear death. You might even be thinking of yourself. Before I was saved, I, I don't remember fearing death. Does that mean that Satan is powerless over that person? No. Here's how I'd answer that. In the same way that you and I, before we were saved, did not realize that we were, in fact, slaves to sin. Today, many people are slaves to the fear of death and likewise don't even know it. A person's ignorance of this fear of death does not preclude the reality of it. In fact, that a person might be ignorant of his or her being a slave to the fear of death simply means that they have already believed Satan's first lie. You will not surely die. That ignorance further proves that a person is under his power. In other words, the non-believer should fear death. You should fear death if you don't have eternal life in Jesus. You should be afraid of that. But for the person whose ignorance has blinded them from that, as was true of so many of us, some of you remember, uh, do you remember before you were a believer, maybe just being totally ignorant of the fear of death? Yeah, whatever, that's coming, not a big deal. Talk to people like this sometimes. Talk to people who hate God and have no, no fear of that. I mean, Satan has flexed his power in you believing the lie. For the unbeliever, you will die. And apart from Jesus, there is no promise of eternal life for you. No victory over that death. Apart from Jesus, there is no victory over death for you. But for those who believe in Jesus... You are adopted sons and daughters of God. We no longer need to have any fear of death at all. Jesus' death on our behalf incapacitates our great enemy. 2 Timothy 1.10 tells us about the purpose and grace of God, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel. Colossians 2.15 tells us, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. While it looked like a defeat, Jesus' death on the cross was a victory. It was triumph. Aha! He won. Died the death we should have died. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil, devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So here's what this means for us. Jesus has declared victory over Satan. And as believers, we embrace that. Now some might be thinking, man, Rich, this sounds pretty triumphal. 
Doesn't the Bible warn us to watch out for Satan? Yes, yeah, it does. Look at, look at 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So does it say here, don't worry. You don't have to worry. He's not, he's nowhere near you. He's not coming around you. You don't need to be watchful. No, it says be watchful. Other translations say be alert. So why we put on the full armor of God. Satan is a deceiver. He's a tempter. It's what he does. And this is how he exerts influence over the world. Through deception. Through temptation. For the believer, Satan is only as powerful as his lies are believed. For the believer, Satan is only as powerful as his lies are believed. This is why Peter immediately follows this verse with the very next verse. Resist him, firm in your faith. Resist. That's how you defeat. That's how you defeat Satan. James 4, 7 makes it even clearer. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. How do you resist him? The same way you resist any temptation. Don't believe the lie. Do you not know that's what temptation ultimately is? It's a deception. It's a lie. The power in temptation is the lie. When you believe that the thing you are being tempted by or with will be more satisfying than what God actually has for you, that's where there's power. You believed that this was more appealing than this. That the lie of Satan was more appealing than the truth that God had for you. You resist the devil by not believing the lie. By, by looking and saying, this is nothing compared to forever at peace with God in his presence, worshiping him through the ages. Psh, what do you have to offer that can come close to this? See, that's what temptation is. You resist the devil and he will flee. It doesn't say turn around and run, get away from him. It says he will flee. He's going to run away from you. Your fearlessness regarding death robs Satan of his greatest weapon. He makes you untouchable by him. Untouchable. And where do I get the bold language for that? I get that from the Bible. 1 John 5, 18-19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. It's Jesus protects the believer. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Why? They still believe the lie that something is better than Jesus. This is why at root, if you're ever trying to help a fellow Christian brother or sister through any struggle that there is, at root, the problem is you're not seeing He's better. Whatever the problem is, 
I used to be really afraid to counsel other Christians. I don't think of myself as a good counselor. I'm kind of the guy who says, get over it. That's the way that I tend to think about problems. Okay? And I was concerned as a pastor that I'd be able to shepherd people well through those things. Like, it's really easy. Stop sinning. And I don't mean that I'm sinless. And I, I, but I know that about myself. What are my biggest problems? My sin. When we see that this is the root of all the problems, this is the root of all the issues, even amongst the Christians in our life, is going to be we're believing lies. You become untouchable. You separate from the world. You come out from under the power of the evil one when you look Jesus full on in the face and say, I want you. Nothing else compares. You can have the world. I want Jesus. Don't you see then how important it is to be equipped by the truth? Don't you see then that you should want every area of your life to be scrutinized by God's word? Every area to be to be. Press through this grid so that nothing makes it onto the other side of that sieve. Every area. Not the, I know enough about truth. No, 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 no. Just keep growing in it. This is sanctifying for you. To know truth more and hate the lie. The fear of death is slavery. If you struggle with this, you know this. What's the fear of death? Some of you know this very at the front of your face. Some of you, I say fear of death, you know exactly what I mean. If you struggle with fear of death, then you're living as though in slavery. This is like the person who has been bound by chains all his or her life. And the chains come off and they're, they're purchased to freedom. They're redeemed. And yet they still... Put the chains on. You don't need to do that. And the reason verses like the ones that I'm pointing out here, and and even in Hebrews chapter 2, are here, are because Christians are going to struggle with this. You might not get this all the way into your mind. You might struggle with the fear of death. It doesn't say, don't worry, you're a Christian. You don't struggle with the fear anymore. It's telling you, don't do that. Don't believe that anymore. Sisters, sisters in Christ, Listen to me, please. In my experience, you are much more likely to fall prey to this particular lie than your brothers. I don't even care if that sounds sexist. My experience, this is, this is so evident. Sisters, you're going to be under a kind of targeting from the enemy with this one about you and the lives and the safety of your children and when your husband's gone late that night and you're, you're home alone in the house and you think about your life. This is a part of our gender differences that I think genuinely will affect people uniquely. Not that brothers won't struggle with this at all, but I think many of you, when I say that, you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> you need to be encouraged, sisters. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. Look, look at this. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. What's your, what's your help in those moments? Your Savior. 
Truth, truth. Brothers, be gentle, be patient with the wives, daughters, with your fellow sisters in Christ on this one. Wash them with the water of the word on the truth, truth, gentle truth. There are lots of things you're going to deal with more so than they might. This is probably one that husbands, you need to uniquely be ready to help your wives with, okay? You know, don't you, that there are places on this earth that are so dangerous to Christians that going there would mean almost certain death. But Christians go. Men and women. Do they not know? They believe the truth. Here's what I want to close today. I want to read from Romans 8. Okay? And I'm going to introduce Romans 8 by saying this to you. The fear of death is an empty threat. In the New Testament, Jesus, as well as many other authors, agree that death for a Christian is as innocuous as sleep. It's just that harmless. The fear of death is an empty threat. Paul even says, it'd be better, oh, it'd be so much better to be dead in this body but he commits to stay. Why? Why? Because God has worked for me here. To live is Christ. To die is gain. But I'm not yet done. There's work still to do. Let me show you these glorious verses. Romans 8, 1 through 2. I'm, I'm going I'm to read just a portion of Romans 8 to you. For those who struggle with the fear of death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's the truth. You are going to die and your children are going to die and the loved ones you know are going to die. But you do not need to have that fear of that death. Because after you die and stand before God, if you believe in Jesus alone as your ultimate final sufficient basis for salvation. There is no condemnation for you. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 33 through 37, a little later in that chapter. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, we know who would want to. The accuser. Who shall bring any charge against, the God, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So if you would imagine the picture, if you're standing before God and Satan saying, but he did, but she did, so much of his or her life, they lived as though all the other things you made were better than you. God says, I justified my son or my daughter. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's the truth. Let's pray. Father, we see as we read through Hebrews 2 here, so many truth nuggets along the way. We can't help but just want to linger as we walk through these verses. Father, I am acutely aware that the fear of death, that the effects of the fear of death, that the power of Satan in our past life can still have residual effects on even believers today. That's why we need these encouragements. Father, I pray that you would help us be reminded that Jesus has paid the price, that we have been justified, past tense, completed, finished, made right before you in Jesus. And there is no condemnation that can stick. No accusation can stand. Father, we are so grateful for this, and we need to be reminded by this regularly. Lord, I know that there are some people here who may struggle with the residual effect of the power of the devil in that they don't even think about the fact they're going to die. Lord, Lord, I believe that there may be brothers and sisters in Christ. This is often for all of us, perhaps. that we just don't even think about it. This doesn't come to mind that we're going to die. And we just live our life and all of our minutes kind of as though we're just going to live in this body and this life and this place for forever. And all the tangible and practical things of our day matter eternally. Lord, maybe we need to be the ones who are shaken awake to the reality that we are going to die. And that is a good news reminder for believers. And that those around us who are likewise going to die, who do not know you, there's nothing more awful. Lord, awake us to that reality. Father, for those who are here, when I said fear of death, they know exactly. Maybe the sisters, perhaps some brothers here, Lord, who are thinking right now, I, I know I know that fear of death. I think about that. I worry all the time for my safety and the safety of my children and my, my loved ones. And Oh, Lord, I pray that you would overcome that slavery to fear with the truth. Lord, point us to the truth, the reality that because of Jesus, we can have peace with you, live in eternal bliss, joy, goodness forever and ever because of what your son did on the cross. Father, these are supernatural things. It is supernatural for a person to be able to consider rightly death without fear. Lord, only by the power of your spirit can that be done. I pray that you would awaken the spirit in us, that you would, you would send him into our hearts to remind us, to awaken us to those truths. We will die. All people will, and we don't need to have any fear if we are in Christ. Father, I ask a supernatural thing, and so I appeal to you to do that work that I certainly cannot do. Do it by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.